Welcome to Mythal Ladies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. So today is February, which is the month of Valentine's Day. So we thought we'd talk about love goddesses. So there are a lot of really well-known love goddesses, such as Aphrodite and Freya, but we won't be talking about them today because we can dedicate an episode to each of them in their own right. So today we'll be talking about lesser-known goddesses. We're defining love goddesses as goddesses of romantic love, erotic love, beauty, and fertility. Many love goddesses throughout world cultures are seen as female, which is because love was associated with marriage, and marriage was considered to be a woman's domain. Love deities across world cultures can show the value of that culture regarding romantic love, marriage, and sex, as we will see with the goddesses we have for you today. So, Zoe, who's our first lady? Alright, our first lady is Asfiq. And she is from Armenia. Cool. Yeah. So Asfik is the Armenian goddess of fertility and love, and then later also of maidenly beauty, water, and streams. She was actually originally considered a creator goddess of heaven and earth, but later she was demoted to a more maidenly character, with her role as creator being replaced by the chief god Arabest. And she is associated with both the Greek Aphrodite and the Mesopotamian Ishtar slash Inanna, who we cover in episode two. And that's going to be a theme. You'll see a lot of these goddesses, um, these goddesses of fertility and love are related to other more well-known goddesses that you may have heard of. Yes. Um, And she is said to be the lover of Vahagun, who was the ancient Armenian god of thunder, war, and fire. And actually, he was later associated with the Greek hero Hercules to get more of an idea of what he was like. So that's fun. Interesting. Her name comes from a diminutive of the Armenian word for star, Oth. And that's because she was connected to the planet Venus, or the morning star. So in some stories, um, she's considered to be the daughter of Zusudra, who was the protagonist of the Sumerian flood myth. And she was born after the floodwaters had receded. So after Zusudra had died, his sons, Titan, Iopitos, and Menarman began to fight for power over the universe. Asfik was able to stop their fighting and bring peace. And so Titan and Iopitos accepted peace with Menarman under the condition that all of Menarman's sons would be killed so they could not take power away from them. And so the first few t- sons were killed, but afterwards, Osfig and Menarman's wives stole his children away to Mount Deuznetsk, saving them and raising them. And so um, another story associated with Osfig is that she used to come to Earth and often to bathe in a river in Western Armenia. So men heard Wait, about so this. Wait, so where does she live usually? Um, it's unclear. I'm guessing there's some sort of, like, heavenly area, you know, like, yeah, domain. Okay. Um, so the men heard that she liked to bathe in this river, and they would hide in bushes around the river trying to catch a glimpse of her as she bathed. However, Osfi was shy and created a mist to surround the area and herself as she bathed, and so the area is now called mush or mist. And so what I find interesting about both those myths is they sound kind of similar to other Greek myths um, that are more possibly well-known. 
Yeah, I was thinking of Artemis. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like Artemis. And then also the myth of um, her taking away Menarmon's sons um, or children reminds me of the story of Zeus as a child and how he was uh, saved from his father and uh, taken and raised on a little island um, in secret. So her main seat of worship was in Ashtashat, and it was a temple named for her lover, uh, Vahagan again, um, and it was called Vahagan's bedroom. So, ooh. Interesting. Yeah. And then um, there are ancient Armenian structures known as Vishapakar, or dragon stones, and they were often erected as part of her worship. There were several other temples to her found throughout Armenia, but many of them were destroyed once Christianity took over the area. And her festival, known as Vardavar, is celebrated in mid-July. Um, and originally, it was replaced by a celebration of the transfiguration of Jesus when Christians took over the area. Um, although the celebrations still to this day involve acts of worship for Asfig. And that includes the sprinkling of water on each other for good luck and the releasing of doves, which are a symbol for her. Interesting. And she's actually still worshipped today as a part of Armenian neo-paganism. Um, they often give sermons at the Temple of Garni, and they asked Asfig to bless Armenia with rain by sprinkling the audience with rose water and giving wine and apricots to the audience. Aw. Which sounds like a really great time. It really does. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's Asfig. I think she's, you know, really great and just a really wonderful love goddess to start us off. She actually reminds me a lot of my next lady, as you'll see. Okay. So yeah. My my next lady is Tudon, who is the Etruscan goddess of love, peace, and harmony, who's also associated with Aphrodite. Uh-huh. So if you don't know, because I didn't know, Etruscan mythology comes from Etruria, which was a region in central Italy, which then became part of the Roman Empire in about 800 BCE. Ooh. A lot of their culture seems to have inspired that of Roman culture, and so a lot of mythology has equivalents in Greek and Roman mythology. Mm, yeah. So her name means lady or mistress, and it's related to the Etruscan words turanuve, which means lovable or venerated, tur, which means dedicate, turon, which means given, and turza, which means offer. Which bring together the ideas of love and worship, which implies that that which is lovable is worthy of worship. Aw, that's really really nice. nice. I like that a lot. Yeah. And so her Roman equivalent, Venus, has the same idea with the word venerate. Mm. Also, the Etruscans also named the month of July after her, or Tyraneus, which is interesting because just like I speak. Yeah. So July is a love month, I guess. Yeah, and it's going to come up again in some of my notes, so that's (laughs) really interesting. Yeah. She is often depicted with wings and often associated with birds, such as doves, geese, Mm -hmm. and swans. Wow. So I'm thinking that there's some relation there. Absolutely, yeah. So something interesting is that she is shown with handmaidens, including Lhasa, the goddess of fate, who may be shown as one or three goddesses. Mm. This is so interesting to me because symbolically it's like love is even more powerful than fate. Mm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So in terms of the Etruscan view of love and marriage, a source I have says that unlike Greek and Roman women, Etruscan women often married for love. We can see this on their sarcophagi where husbands and wives were shown on top of their coffins and seemed to be in loving poses, for example, gazing at each other. Oh. Yeah, so it's a lot of, like, sort of, like, statues, kind of, but, like, on top of a 
sarcophagus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really nice. You should look at photos. I will. So another source I have mentions that Etruscan women had a lot of rights for women in the ancient world, enjoying freedom and equality, such as being able to freely give their opinions. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. So little is known about the Etruscans from their literature and language, as no literature survives and their language has only been partially deciphered. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so much of the analysis about love in the Etruscan world comes from engraved bronze mirrors, tomb paintings, and sarcophagi. Oh, it's interesting, you know, like, those are the, the objects that um, they have writings of love on. Oh, but then, of course, you said that those are the ones that have been translated, so there's probably other ones as well. True. But, yeah. But, yeah. So, in one bronze mirror, Turan is depicted as a lover of Hercle, or Hercules. Oh. This is interesting because Aphrodite was not known as the lover of Heracles in Greek mythology. And yeah. we don't know any specific tales of them because, like I mentioned, there is no surviving literature. Uh-huh. But evidently, they were lovers in Etruria. Wow. So that's nice. Yeah. She was also the patron goddess of the city of Vulci, a large city in Etruria, famous for its cemeteries. So Turan is one of few Etruscan deities to survive in Etruscan folklore where her equivalent is Turana, a spirit or fairy of beauty and happiness who helps people in love. Awesome. Isn't that nice? Yeah, that's super cool. I think Turan is really interesting because she can tell us a lot about how the Etruscans viewed love. Mm-hmm. And clearly they viewed it as very like holy and sacred, mm-hmm. but also view it in a very sweet way, in a way where men and women were equal, as opposed to, like, the Greek and Roman view of love, where, like, tenderness wasn't necessarily the main quality in the romantic relationships. So I think that's nice. Yeah. And that's Turan for you. I love that, yeah. That's super interesting, because, like, Oswig also um, is associated with the uh, Hercules, or Heracles equivalent, but again... Yeah. In Greek myth, there's not any, there's no connection between Heracles and Aphrodite, so. Mm-hmm. And that's, I just interesting. think that's interesting. Yeah. So my next lady is Prenda, and she is the Albanian goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. Um, and so she's the wife of Perendi, who is the god of the sky and thunder and the chief god of the Albanian pantheon. And when I was looking at it, I was reminded that... Um, Vahagon is the god of thunder and war and fire. I don't know. Maybe it's a connection. I don't know. It's interesting that the, like, wife of the main god is the beauty and, like, love yeah. goddess. Yeah. It's pretty nice. I think that's really cool because, like, in a lot of places, or at least, like, you know, well, if, like, if we're talking about the, you know, the more well-known ones, like Aphrodite and Freya are not the wives of the chief gods. Like, they're important, but they're not, like, as important as yeah. some of the other goddesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was originally worshipped by the Illyrians, uh, which is a group of Indo-European tribes that lived in the Balkans and alongside the ancient Greeks and the Thracians. So, like, the three groups interacted with each other. And so, uh, speaking of that, her worship was tied to the worship of Venus, the Roman goddess of love, and also potentially Freya, the Norse goddess of love. So Everything's connected. It really is all connected. Um And so she was widely worshipped in northern Albania, particularly by women, until recently. And she's celebrated in a festival on July 26th. No way. Yeah. So on this day, devotees would dress in fine clothes and set out a mortar and pestle, which represent the sexual union between men and women. So. (laughs) Okay. Sounds like a fun time, I guess. (laughs) Um, 
The rainbow is referred to as Lady Prende's belt, and she rides on a carriage drawn by swallows. Hmm. Once Albania was Christianized, Prende became identified with St. Anne, the mother of Mary, and called St. Veneranda. St. Anne, according to Wikipedia, is the patron of housewives, mothers, pregnancy, sterility, and seamstresses, just to name a few. She's also the patron of a lot more, but those felt like relevant to our discussion. Uh, so St. Veneranda was so popular among Albanian folk culture that among the 275 churches created in the 16th and 17th centuries, 33 were dedicated to her. And this was more than any other saint aside from the Virgin Mary and St. Nicholas. Wow. Yeah, so she was very important. And even more churches were dedicated to her in the 18th and 19th centuries, and pilgrimages to these churches were popular among both Christians and Muslims, which I thought was interesting. So yeah. she's still very much relevant. Um, and often these pilgrimages were made in hopes of finding cures for mental illnesses, according to one source I found, um, which they didn't say anything else about that, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, her sacred day is Friday. Um, which might sound familiar because it's also the sacred day of many other love goddesses, including uh, Venus, as is the root of the word for Friday in French, Vendredi. And it's named after her in Albanian as Dita Eprenda. Ah, that's really nice. So yeah, that's Prenda. She's great. I like her. Mm -hmm. So my next lady is Shochi Quetzal. Mm. who is the Aztec goddess of song, dance, fertility, and erotic love, and the patron of disadvantaged women, such as slate women, as well as young mothers. Awesome. She's, al she's also associated with the moon and the lunar phases. Okay. So she's also known by the name Ichpochli, um, which means maiden or young woman. Uh, this term originally only referred to her young age, but after the Spanish conquest, it took on a virginal connotation. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So her name is a combination of Xochitl, which means flower, and Quetzali, which means precious feather. Oh. And so she can be referred to as precious flower feather. That's really pretty. Yeah. And so too great indulgence in sexual pleasures was said to be punished by Xochitl by <laughs> afflicting boils and pustules upon those who failed to observe her protocols. Interesting. Is what one source of mine said. Hmm. So most Aztec goddesses were depicted as matrons, so it's unique among Aztec goddesses that Xochiquetzal is depicted as a young woman. Hmm. She was often shown adorned with flowers and wearing rich garments. The association between flowers and sexuality was because the Aztecs, like many other cultures, viewed flowers with like a like a yonic interpretation, mm -hmm. as is understandable. I will also mention that the Aztecs had a different view in regards to variance in sexuality and gender mm. and were much more accepting, or so it seems to me from my little research. And her brother, Xochipili, was the patron of, of homosexuality. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. So Xochiquetzal was one of the oldest Aztec gods, though not much is known about her story. A recurring theme in her myths is her relation to the moon. Hmm. She is thought to have uh, a Maya origin, and her correspondence in Maya mythology is known as Goddess I, and she represented fertility, procreation, erotic love, and weaving, much like Shushiketzel. Mm -hmm. The symbolism between pregnancy, weaving, and the moon may seem sort of random, but they're actually linked in Aztec symbolism. Okay. 
So pregnancy and weaving were connected through the idea of a spindle. As a Mm. weaver worked, the spindle gradually became more round. As a pregnancy progressed, the mother-to-be's belly would also grow rounder. Mm -hmm. As a lunar deity, Shoshiketzel had an additional link to pregnancy because the moon also grew rounder over the course of its cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can see the connection. Yeah, definitely. That's really fun. Yeah, very. I think it's a really nice little connection there. Um, also, especially between like pregnancy and the moon, like, mm-hmm. ooh, it's really nice. Yeah. So, also, weavers were meant to be, have been like loose women. I think mm-hmm. that weavers were also associated with slavery, like being slave women. So, mm-hmm. I think it's because of that. Yeah. So, that's why Chuchiketzel was associated with weaving, also. Mm-hmm. Similar to Eve from the Bible, Shoshiketzel is also considered to be the first woman to commit sin. Okay. She is said to have seduced her brother Yapan, who had taken a vow of chastity. Hmm. She was punished, and Yapan was turned into a scorpion who hide their shame by crawling under rocks. Wow. Okay. I think it's interesting that Yapan gets punished, but like by turn like that's like, pretty severe punishment, but then Yeah. Shoshiketsu gets to walk away pretty much. I mean she gets punished too, but not as yeah. badly. Yeah, that is interesting. And yeah, it's interesting um, that she's uh, committed the first sin, and so now she sort of punishes people for, um, like you said, like improper mm-hmm. sexual behaviors. Yeah, I didn't like find or, too like, much details about that, but yeah, came across that. Yeah, so is she like sort of a cautionary goddess trying to like keep them from doing? things I suppose that she so. Did? Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. I was also thinking yeah. about like because like sex is sort of seen as like kind of holy, so there's like mm-hmm. rules associated with it. I guess. Yeah, that makes. That's sense. sort of my thought. I don't know which. I don't know, but yeah, um, yeah, and then also my thought is maybe that was added later. Um, I was after also thinking colonization. That was talking. Yeah, but, I don't know exactly what was. I don't know exactly what was um, added after the Spanish conquest, mm-hmm. but. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't have any authority to say what was or wasn't, but... Yeah, same. So, also, Shoji Ketzel was celebrated during the Festival of Toshkatel, which honors the month of the same name, which corresponds roughly to the 5th to the 22nd of May. Oh, okay. Basically, you're going to be like, oh, is it July again? <laughs> I, I was going to... I was like, is it July? Is it July? Mm, it's fine. Pretty close-ish. Yeah. <laughs> couple months away so mm-hmm. basically a virgin was chosen to impersonate Shoshiketzel and then she was wed to a warrior that represented Tezcatlipoca uh-huh. and then she would be sacrificed and then a bunch of gross stuff happens that I won't describe to you because it's really gross mm-hmm. okay. like some yeah but that's Shoshiketzel great <laughs> she's pretty hardcore yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, once you said someone uh, pretends to be her I was like there's gonna be a sacrifice yeah well, on to the next lady, <laughs> um, who is Klina, is the Irish queen of the Banshees and the goddess of love and beauty. Cool. So, Klina's companions were three birds whose songs can cure all diseases. And she was very beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful woman in the world. She could make warriors weak just by standing in front of them because of her beauty. <laughs> um, and she lived in a palace called uh, Karaglina near Malo Cork. Um, and that means Klina's Rock. She was associated with many of the powerful Gaelic clans from um, ancient Ireland. Um, and she had a few love affairs with many of the members and then was adopted as a fairy woman by a few in sort of like mythology and folklore. 
And she was referenced in poetry by Edward Walsh as an unwelcome pursuer of some of the uh, clan stuff. But um, then I'm like, is that the same way poets like to personify luck and love? So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, love came down on us and we didn't want to be in love. But like Kalina yeah, came, like you a know, poetic kind of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, she also has a dark side. It was mm. said that she would lure sailors to the seas where they would drown and die. Cool. Yeah. Um, so one day she decided to leave her home and the land of promise in the underworld and join her mortal lover Kievan of the curling locks in the mortal world so yeah she left where all the gods were and stayed with her lover which I think was very sweet Mm -hmm. but one day Kievan went on a hunt and left Kalina at home she was waiting for him to return and remained at the seashore but as she waited the warrior king Manan and Maclir began to play a song. The music created a wave that washed her way into the harbor, and whether or not she drowns depends on the story, apparently. Um, but yeah, she got washed away. Oh. Yeah. So the tide in Glandor Court County is known as Tonklina, which means Klina's waves. Oh. And supposedly, okay. yeah, supposedly every ninth wave washing on the shore is a particularly strong wave, and that represents the wave that swept her away. Hmm. The most famous legend associated with Kleena involves some aid she gave to a member of the McCarthy clan. So one oh. man named Cormac McCarthy, not to be confused with the modern-day author, uh, was, having, <laughs> <laughs> was having legal troubles, and he asked Kleena to help. So she told him that the next morning he should kiss this next stone he saw, and if he did, his problems would be solved. So he did as she told him to, and argued his case with such passion and eloquence that the entire court was persuaded. After the, he was his day of success in court, he had the stone set in the wall of his castle, known as Blarney Castle. And it is uh, still, see, I was <laughs> wondering. Yep. <laughs> and is still visited and kissed by many to this day, and that, of course, is the Blarney Stone of legend and folklore. And nice. It's, yeah, and it's said that even Queen Elizabeth I could not convince Cormac to surrender the castle to her. He was just too Ooh. good with words. And then um, I don't actually... So she's called the Queen of the Banshees. There's not a ton about her being the Queen of the Banshees. Um, antiquarian um, John O'Donovan references Kleena as a Banshee in an 1849 letter where he references her weeping in the mountains in response to the Great Famine. Hmm. But, I think it's still a cool title, so I kept it. And yeah, that's Kalina. There's a lot. She did a lot. She does a lot. I really like her. I'd love to know more about her. Me too. I will definitely look into her more. So my next lady is Ketesh, the Egyptian goddess of fertility and sexual pleasure. So she was originally a Semitic goddess of Syrian or Sumerian origin who was syncretized into the Egyptian pantheon. Mm Mm-hmm. She is known as Mistress of All Gods, Lady of the Stars and Heaven, and Eye of Ra without her equal. In terms of etymology, her name comes from the Semitic root, meaning holy, and was likely pronounced by Egyptians as Khatisha, as we mentioned in the Aisha Khatisha episode, Mm -hmm. because they were associated with each other as well. So her center of worship was Kadesh in present-day Syria. She is depicted as a nude woman, standing on the back of a lion or a horse outside of Egypt, and carrying a lotus blossom in one hand and a snake in the other, which were symbols of fertility. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. 
as, yeah, <laughs> imagery. So she's also associated with Anat and Asherah, two Semitic goddesses, as well as Astarte, a Canaanite and Phoenician goddess. Mm-hmm. Her worship was equal to that of Inanna, Isis, Aphrodite, and Astarte, who were also called mistress of all gods. Wow. So she was a pretty big deal. Yeah, sorry, her being called mistress of all gods reminds me of, like, when we were saying, you know, Aphrodite's not the wife of Zeus, so she, but she's still really important, but she's not, like, that level of importance. But um, being called mistress of all gods reminds me of, like, the goddesses who are the wife of, the, like, the most significant one, mm-hmm. the most significant male god. Um, and then, like, I think that shows, like, being called mistress of all gods shows, like, a similar sort of relationship or um, mm-hmm. uh, view um, even if they're in not terms like, of, like married, influence and yeah. yeah. Even if they're not married to the the chief god, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Ketesh may have been a triple goddess merged into one. Oh, her triple goddess form is Kuchu Astarte Anat, who was a representation of herself, Anat, and Astarte. Oh, cool. So it was a common practice for Canaanites and Egyptians to merge various deities through syncretism as is shown through the triple goddess. Mm-hmm. So not very much is known about Ketesh, but I can tell you a little bit about how love was viewed in ancient Egypt. Okay. So first of all, men and women were considered to be equal in accordance with a myth that says that Isis made the sexes equal in power. Awesome. However, men were still considered the dominant gender and were the ones who wrote literature with various views about women. So, hmm. Yeah. So marriages were arranged for personal advancement, but there's still evidence that romantic love was important. Mm-hmm. It was a popular theme for poetry, especially in the New Kingdom from 1570 to 1069 BCE, which was also a period of time when Ketesh was secretized into the Egyptian pantheon. So maybe a connection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, sexuality wasn't considered to be taboo in ancient Egypt, but was just a part of everyday life. And the only thing that was stigmatized was infidelity. Mm. And also incest, but only among the lower classes. Yep, the, the, the emperor sure had a lot of incest going on. Yeah, no, so. yeah, higher classes, it was fine for them. Yeah. So also there was no word for virgin in ancient Egyptian, which signifies hmm. that the concept of sexual experience or lack thereof was not important. Awesome. Which is pretty cool. Also... Marriage was meant to last your entire life and also in the afterlife, but also life expectancy was very short, with men dying in their 30s and women often dying in their teens from childbirth. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, yeah. That's Ketesh. Awesome. And she also has a, sort of a connection with the other ladies, because there's like Astarte, there's like yeah. Anana. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of together. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, rounding out with our last lady, Milda. So Milda is the Lithuanian goddess of love, courting, and friendship. Unlike many of the goddesses we've talked about today, she prioritizes love and friendship over marriage and courting, and places friendship at a higher priority than marriage and romantic love. How interesting. Yeah. She's known as both Milda and Aleksota, and she had many temples and places around Lithuania, most of which were replaced by churches. Her sacred month was the month of April. And she was celebrated every year at a festival called Wittolorada. So we have, like, all the goddesses being, like, spring or summer mm-hmm, months. Yeah, which I think makes a lot of sense for fertility and love. True. Um, yeah. Her sacred day is Friday, as is, mm-hmm. like I said, lots of love goddesses. 
So she sounds really cool and fun, right? Yes. Well, she actually may not have existed. Oh. So she was first mentioned in texts by Theodor Narbut, who wrote about the history of Lithuania in the early to mid-1800s. Mm. And Narbut was inspired by the beautiful Roman nymph Alexota, described uh, by the Polish writer Dominik Szybinski. But there's actually no evidence in archaeology, folklore, or written documents or research that she existed before the 1800s. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So despite this, yeah, despite this, Milda grew in popularity and was featured in many pieces of writing. The most important was uh, the work of Josef Ignacy Kraszewski and his epic poem Anafielis. And this poem describes the celebrations and worships of Milda. So this, even despite the lack of evidence to support that she existed from like ancient times before the 1800s, Milda is still a popular figure in Lithuanian culture, particularly among Lithuanian neo-pagans. So Milda is a very popular girl's name. Uh, the female figure on the Freedom Monument in Riga, the capital city of Lithuania, is often called Milda. And there's a mountain on Venus named after her, the Milda oh, Mons. Yeah. That's nice. Another Venus association. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that, like, you know, she was probably invented by this writer guy in the early 1800s, but she's developed such, like, a cultural significance and importance that then there's an object on another planet that's named after her. Yeah, that's very cool. Really like, cool. somebody just decided that she would exist one day, and then she did. Yeah. Um, there's also some conspiracy theories I found that Christians covered up the existence of her worship before the 1800s, and so most of her lore has been lost. But honestly, I don't think that's true. I couldn't really find a lot of evidence for that. Mm. Um, but I think it shows the power of mythology in creating a nationalist identity. Um, what we were talking about before is that there are so many of these love goddesses who are, you know, specific to a certain culture as we've talked about today, but often have their roots in some, like, original love goddess that from, like, the mm -hmm. beginning of, like, humankind and civilizations. And so I think that, um, and, you know, we see that in so many different places. Um, and I think that perhaps uh, Narbut wanted Lithuania to have a goddess like that and to create a character um, in a mythology like that as in order to increase national pride and something i think about is the finnish kalevala which was created to celebrate finnish culture in the late 1800s and encourage finnish independence by reviving finnish poetry so in a similar way the creation of Mielda allows for celebration of a specifically lithuanian cultural icon and a specifically lithuanian love goddess that has its origins in other places as we see with all the other goddesses and has that history um yeah that is specifically lithuanian and it's clear that she's really important considering that there's a place on venus named after her and it's a super popular girl's name and everything so i think that's really interesting it's like it sort of like created a need for her people mm -hmm. sort of latched on yeah it's really and, interesting yeah and i think it's just sort of an interesting thought about like mythology in general and like sort of how we see like myths developing and culture and like folklore and cultural identities developing together mm -hmm. and just sort of like the creation of these like iconic symbols in order to like develop like something to unite around yeah exactly it's also interesting like you were mentioning how a lot of these women seemed to come from like one 
central goddess sort Mm of sort of like it's all just sort of one not like in the entire world but like many parts of the world yeah it all connects to like you know one goddess in like one very ancient society or something like that like in honor of somebody yeah which is really interesting Mm-hmm. It's different yeah. for Shoji Ketzel, but mm-hmm. she came from the Maya goddess. Yeah, so. so we still have all these different cultures influencing each other. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting. Like We see that a lot, but not as much as we do for the love goddesses, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like, they yeah. seem to all be connected, pretty much. Yeah, like, there's definitely a connection that we haven't really seen um, with the other themes that we've done. Where, like, literally almost every lady I looked at was like, yeah, she's associated with Venus or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's probably, sh- like we said, there's a need. There's a need for a goddess of love. Um, to the I think to have the idea that there's someone overseeing, like, the acts of love and romance and sex that happens between humans because it's such, like, a complicated, like, messy subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, like, is rough to deal with and, like, you know... It's nice like, to think that there's emotionally, something yeah. sort of controlling everything and yeah, supporting and, like, people. Yeah, someone you can pray to for advice or help to be like, hey, I want to date this person. Like, can you send me some good goodwill your way? You know, like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's and, also nice that these like show a lot about how love was viewed in the various cultures. Mm-hmm. Like, especially, my favorite was probably Turan and how, you know, love is, like, Mm -hmm. worthy of worship. Like, that's beautiful. I think that it makes sense that there's such a widespread, like, like I said, every um, culture needs, like, a love goddess. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have one, you can just make one. Um, Apparently so. Yeah. Um, So, when it comes to discussions of love and fertility goddesses, I think there's, like, often discussions about how their worship was distorted and destroyed by patriarchal Christians. And that definitely um, seems to some extent to be the case because many of the women I discussed in their worship were cast aside in favor of Christianity and male gods. Um, But people still found ways to worship these women, even even through a Christian framework. So, I'm thinking, like, the continued worship of Prenda as St. Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to talk about fertility goddesses in general. And so, like, many ancient goddesses were referred to as fertility goddesses, but oftentimes they actually did not fulfill that role. So sometimes they were actually male fertility gods. So, example, in the Canaanite religion, both Baal and El were considered fertility gods, and not really any of the goddesses involved in the religion, yet nowadays they are referred to as the fertility goddesses. Like, for example, Anat, who is primarily a goddess of war, but there's been, like, a fertility aspect that's been added to her. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sort of says that, like, fertility is a domain that's comfortable for goddesses to have, unlike domains like war, the ocean, or other traditionally masculine fields. And so, therefore, sexist Western scholars have sometimes emphasized and created fertility aspects of goddess domains in order to reduce the complexity and ambivalence of the goddesses as characters and to fit them into more proper womanly Christian roles. Interesting. Yeah. And so, to clarify, I do think that all the goddesses we talked about today are goddesses of love or fertility or sex, as we talked about. But when we were doing our research, there were multiple times when I was looking at a goddess and I was like, she's not, her domain is not actually fertility. Her domain's not actually love. She's more focused on, like, um, filth and cleaning, or she's more focused on, like, 
it's just simply actions in the bedroom, including like sleep or childbirth. So it's not just about like love or sex. And so I think that it's very definitely has been that influence that like female goddesses sort of have their domains transformed into sort of more of a fertility domain when they have like a lot more complex when that's not really accurate to them. Mm -hmm. I do think there's like a lot of unknown history involved with like sort of rewriting some goddesses domains Mm -hmm. and like the stuff that we don't necessarily know about. Yeah. But it definitely exists. Yeah. And then I think that, you know, it sort of thinks about like, you know, the goddesses who are goddesses of sex, but maybe not fertility. Like maybe they're the goddesses of sex as an act of pleasure and fun and not as an act to get pregnant, Mm -hmm. which also would make, you know, patriarchal Christians uncomfortable and want to, you know, remove the evidence of that possibly. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, the presence of fertility goddesses and like love and sex and beauty goddesses in general. Um, it's really interesting how powerful they most of them are. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said earlier, kind of it, like it shows the importance of that domain in people's lives. It's something that people think about a lot. It's something that people that occupies people's thoughts, actions, words a lot. And it's something that people really want comforted. And I think it was really cool to learn about all these goddesses that you don't really hear about from a lot of. Um, mythologies that you don't hear a lot about yeah exactly like i don't think we'd ever talked about an armenian goddess or or etruscan mm-hmm. yeah or etruscan i didn't know anything about what you said about like etruscan and the etruscan language and i thought that was really cool yeah, well it is definitely really cool because they were also a, i mean it seems to me like a pretty big society but mm-hmm. they got sort of like absorbed by the roman empire yeah uh yeah so thank you for listening to our episode today Um, hopefully all these love goddesses can bring you luck in your romantic endeavors this month and any months to come. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review and tell all your friends that you found this podcast and you think it's really cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be back here next week with another episode. Mytholady's podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Mytholady's and visit us on our website at mytholady's.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week.